Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Park. Welcome to it. This is Joey Clark back in the saddle. Alongside me, also back in the saddle, Troy. What's up, man? Hey, I like that baseline. I know, me too. And this rolling bass and driving drums. Driving in that vocal, it just gets to the point. I want to give it all to you tonight. And this song was inspired for me to play tonight by somebody who remained anonymous, but really hits me in the feels. But I, I just came back. I first off want to say, if you're listening to me for the first time and you heard me at VCon, you met me at VCon this weekend, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to whatever this crap's going to be. Because I had an amazing time over in Atlanta this weekend. Um, but it set, I got set up in the right mood by the same anonymous person that inspired me to play Kiss tonight. Go over there and we watch uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Really? Yeah. And essentially interpreted our lives, our love lives in particular, through the characters in St. Elmo's Fire. So it put me into like the, a weird headspace that when I show up to the conference, not only do, for me, just doing the normal home work thing for five, six years now, that first day, I had massive social anxiety. Not quite a panic attack, but like on the verge of one. It was weird. I got over it after like a day and a half. But anyway, I'm at the conference, like, thinking of everybody in terms of, like, the archetypal characters in St. Elmo's Fire. Of course, if you're interpreting my own love life, I'm the guy, I'm not Emilio Estevez, who goes a little too over the top of putting the chick on the pedestal. I mean, I've done that. You know me, I've done that. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. I've done it too, man. But I'm really the character, I'm not Rob Lowe, who's just a terrible drunk, who plays the sexy saxophone. One of the greatest cinematic scenes ever, by the way. Rob Lowe in that bar playing saxophone. And I'm not him. He's a little too far gone for me. Too much of an a-hole. I'm the guy that everybody thinks is gay because he won't come on to people, but he's secretly in love with his best friend's gal. That's me. Hmm. I literally had a moment like that in my life. This is more middle school. Yeah, I was going to say, I could see that being from from middle school, for sure. Yeah, that was, that was kind of... I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. So I'm at FeedCon thinking in these odd, odd terms. And I have to say, the uh, panel that I was on was splendid. I was like, how much should I be my kind of radio self? I'm on a panel with three other people. 
Kevin, Mara, and Hannah. And I don't know if I should, you know, try to dominate this thing. So the first thing I said to the crowd, they asked me, why did you want to do creative work? Why did you want to do something that would have some element of performance? So the first thing I said was, I was once Jesus Christ. And I could hear the room, like a bunch of, the pucker factor went up. Yeah. And then I followed up with, in God's spell. So, you know, and I, you know, the whole kick that I had when I did that in high school. And I really did fall in love with performing, be on a, on a stage. And now that I don't have to look at people or smell people. Um, <laughs> now, the people at this conference, very young, very good looking. I have to say, it was a very good looking conference. And so we just kind of went through each of our unique professions. Like one guy, I felt like the country bumpkin over there, by the way. You have people from New York City, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, one guy with a million plus YouTube followers, Kevin Lieber, a, web, a page called Vsauce. Oh, that was him. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I enjoy Vsauce. Yeah. And he was fantastic. Got to know him. Uh, and so, sharing my own story, I felt like I did fine. People told me I did fine, but I was really learning and kind of in awe of a lot of these people who are creative professionals, um, who are very good at their craft, a little bit more into their career, and found a little bit more success than I think I have yet to find. Uh, but I also was swept away beyond the personal thing. Like, there's some networking I did. I mean, shout out to Ezra. We were sharing a lot of dirty jokes back and forth. We both learned that we love disgusting things. Not to do them, but to talk about them and make a joke. And well, that's, that's what you do. Oh, oh, you're saying, well, not to do them, but... No, you, I... Go for it. Go for it. Just yeah. Oh, just go for it. Don't just make a joke. You gotta try it once. Just yeah. try it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, the best stories in life, I've found, can either be attributed to... I did this and I liked it, so I kept doing it. Or I did this and I hated it, and here's what made it awkward. Or yeah. here's, here's where why I'm, I'm not going to continue this. Here's where I really bombed. And like, I love those stories. You're right. Where here's how I royally effed up in my life, and I can now look back on it several years removed and go, man, what an idiot. <laughs> and you really, it's like you really weren't that guy. I don't feel like I'm the same guy I was starting this show even a year ago. I feel like I personally have changed a lot. And I come out of my melancholy. I don't wear black every day. But anyway, I want to get back to this. I, I blame David Duchovny for that. I agree. Californication? Yeah. Yeah. It well, became the uniform. Like, it's easy enough. It's easy enough. I'm nowhere near as good looking as Mr. Duchovny now. I mean, who is? I can think of a few people. Like Rob Lowe, especially in St. Elmo's Fire with that saxophone. Yeah. Well, I like, I like Parks and Rec, Rob Lowe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chris Traeger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Perkins. Um, so beyond just me, kind of the people I met, and before I get to one story about why you should go to bed before, say, 2.30 at an Atlanta hotel bar... <clears throat> I learned a lesson this weekend, Troy. I learned a lesson. I want to get to the broader picture of this conference. Because you know me. I'm, I'm a bit cynical, especially when it comes to politics. I've been burnt out. about, And even the things I really do believe in, like the libertarian philosophy or the philosophy of freedom, 
you know, you hear the arguments, and a lot of young kids came up to me and said, oh, do you know Murray Rothbard? I'm like, yes, yes, I've read most of Murray's books as much as one can read, because that man was very prolific. And what about this guy, that guy? Have you heard this argument? Like, I've heard the arguments, and I would humor, especially the younger college students there. It was fun, fine. But, you know, you hear all that for years, you say them yourself, you try to preach the gospel of freedom or whatever the hell you want to call it, and you, I get tired of it. And this conference really opened my eyes to a larger world and bigger struggles beyond just the tit-for-tat that you hear in political news every day. I kind of felt like I was alone on this island, and then my eyes were open to stop being such a cynical SOB. For instance... There's this one guy who came out. He's from Venezuela. He had learned violin by watching YouTube videos, self-taught. And he's remarkable. He was there live at the main stage and behind them on this huge screen. He's essentially become like the guy who gave voice but through song, through music and his violin, to the movement kind of resisting the, the government crackdowns there in Venezuela. And they were showing images of these protesters being beaten down by police, kind of a newfangled water cannon, something out of the 1960s here in Alabama, but today in Venezuela. And as these images played, he played an original song that's become almost like a, an anthem, a clarion call for the people trying to fight for freedom there in Venezuela. And it was like the most beautiful, moving thing I've ever heard. Um, just you could hear every note was remarkable, and so it, it first off said we can have a lot in America to argue about. There are a lot of freedoms I think we've lost for whatever reason, and there are new freedoms to be found, new ways to make our lives better in the United States. And we should have those arguments, but they a lot of that and a lot of American political discourse seems petty. Uh, compared to what actual people are going through in, say, developing or underdeveloped parts of the world, like Venezuela. And so to see a young man who had the wherewithal not only to teach himself an instrument, but to give uh, essentially a soundtrack, something for people to be inspired, who are really down and out in this country, just, I had a slight tear. I didn't quite cry, but I felt moved. Like this, my, my cynical side was like, no! Stop it with the sunlight and the inspiration. It's like it's like the first time you listen to Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. Exactly. Gotcha. Ed, that Eddie Hazel guitar mm-hmm. coming up under, and you're like, oh my gosh, my emotions are coming back. I'm supposed to be cold as a stone. Right. But then the waterworks would literally happen later. That night, the speaker after this guy. Uh, tears? Yes, Clint. tears. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a double entendre. I thought we were going to have a Trump scandal. Well, there's a guy named Scott Harrison. Mm-hmm. He starts by telling his story that, well, his mother ended up because of a gas leak or something like that, uh, where she had ultra sensitivity to chemicals in the air. So she always had to be wearing these special suits. He would put books into plastic so she could read them, always had to have a face mask on. And, like, at a very young age, became the caretaker of his mother, this very giving guy. It kind of made him grow up quickly. But when he was 18, he said he discovered New York City and discovered that I could drink for free for a living as a club promoter. And it went from just being able to drink for free for a living to Budweiser, Bacardi, would pay them to drink Budweiser. 
pay them to have a bottle of Bacardi on their table because they're so well-known in the club scene in New York. And it led to this amazing life for a little while. But he said he had every addiction under the sun, short of heroin, but, you know, promiscuity and cocaine and heavy drinking, every everything. And he said, I was miserable, almost to the point of suicide. And something woke him up. He went on a trip to Liberia because of his past and how he was known as a promoter, all the crazy things he had done they actually wouldn't let him just volunteer he had to pay them money to go on a volunteer trip and it was a bunch of doctors who were servicing people in liberia who because of dirty water in particular lack of clean water people huge tumor growths out of their eyes cleft palates and lips and just uh, flesh-eating diseases on faces and the surgeons told him we have enough room in the stadium we're doing things for 1500 people to come in we'll give them surgeries and a lot of these things could be fixed that day and he's thinking how many people are going to show up 5000 people show up wow and he realized right then and there this throng of humanity a lot of them suffering with different ailments they're going to have to turn 3500 people away that really affected him and he realized that the main reason for a lot of this is lack of clean water and i'm sitting here saying okay where's this guy going he he said that you know there are things like cancer like my mother's brain cancer that we scientifically speaking don't know how to fix we're working at it but as for clean water we know how to do it practically just a matter of getting the money there and setting up the infrastructure so he's slowly but surely started this nonprofit called Charity Water. And I'll say charitywater.org. Um, it, it is a cause I think worth supporting. Because they came with local partners. And he describes some of the stories of these towns in Africa. And it especially hurts the women because the men go out and work and try to bring home something. So the women, most of their days, are searching for water, lugging five-gallon uh, buckets or five-gallon containers to very treacherous ravines, usually finding water that isn't clean. Uh, you know, they, he sent back some water to a scientist in the United States to test it, and it was like living, like all the parasites and microbes and leeches, and people would try to have their kids kill leeches that would get in their throats by drinking diesel fuel. I mean, just terrible, terrible situation. So he figured out a way to have 100% of public funds and donations go directly to helping these people. While you know, a few private donors would make sure the overhead would work for their charity. Again, it's called Charity Water. And what started the waterworks for me, and I'm choking up just thinking about it, is this, this image, is this whole town that they figure out, teaming up with a local partner, they figured out how to dig a well. They found a huge aquifer underneath where the town is. So they start digging this well, and the whole town's there, thousands of people watching this dig happen. And all of a sudden, water shoots out like a huge geyser, clean water. And the joy and celebration on these people's faces. I got to look next, a photographer from Montana I met, Lido. We're sitting there, like, tearing up, going, my God. And it just, it, that moment in particular, my cynical self kind of died. No, it grew back later in the night. I'll explain that in just a second. But 
to see that okay we can support people in that way uh, and it's a matter of, and he didn't want it to be like the fear and shame that you, you see a little kid with flies around him donate now you know he wants it to be these people who are capable they can build their communities they just need water another speaker though kind of added a little more that we don't need just charity in fact sometimes charity can hurt um Magat Wade, Magat Wade. She's an entrepreneur from Africa, and she realized how important an issue like free trade. That that was the big conversation with Trump at the G7. These sort of things. Uh, she said that Africans, the problem isn't they can't do; they're not knowledgeable enough. It's that their home governments are so screwed up in the way, say NGOs abroad and other governments with foreign aid work things, it makes us impossible to build communities, to have entrepreneurship. And it drove home in a very personal way, and I can't do justice to the documentary I saw. But she's trying to help people in Senegal build up a business. And she said, I promise you, if you get, if you stop it that I have to pay 40-something percent to send things out of this country, you get rid of all this ridiculous bureaucracy that helps nobody but the people running it, this place will look nothing like the so-called third world in 10 years. These people are eager, ready to work. And so, yes, charity is great. I want the world to have clean water. That one place, uh, Charity Water, has given clean water to eight-something million people in the last 10 years. The 600-something million people don't have access to clean water. But... If you actually give people economic freedom to develop their own and you give them a little bit of know-how, they will make their lives better. Give them a little bit of know-how? Yeah, like say the United States or places in Europe, you know, we've learned how to dig wells before. We have a lot of things like businesses built up, business models, whether in manufacturing or marketing, that can be learned and so it doesn't mean like you come in as kind of the, the white savior complex and i'm going to build your business it's more like oh they can they know what to do it's just because of how their economic system is regulated and to death by their host governments and no guarantee of property rights right they're not allowed to take these models they see all around the world and build up their community so teach a man to fish rather than give a man a fish. Exactly. With regards to, say, engineering and waterworks. There's that word again. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, with regards to engineering and, and getting clean water. Rather than sending intellectual property over, it would be more fortuitous to almost create either a parallel trade program or a program where techniques are taught. Yes. Because if, if you can teach these people to dig a well, and as far as I know, they're already doing it, there's just ways that they can be refined. Exactly. It's the same thing with these young men and women that get their hands on some solar panels, and then they provide power to their whole village. Exactly. Exactly. And, and actually, um, what God said that it's not even the teach a man a fish rather than give a fish. She said... We already know how to fish in all sorts of different ways. We just have all these barriers in our way. Some of it well-intentioned by these global nonprofit. Some of it's just terrible, like with their host governments. Her big point is get out of our way. 
and let us actually be free. And the story has happened in Hong Kong in the last 50 years where this summit with Trump and Kim has happened. Singapore was not developed at all 56 years ago. It's now a, a jewel in terms of economic prosperity. It's not perfect, in, politically speaking, but it's it, this prosperous, booming island nation. And God's point is this, Africa doesn't have to be like this, and Africans aren't helpless. They just need the freedom and the correct mix of institutions, a little bit of help to build up, and they'll be right alongside the rest of the world. It drove home kind of a point I've already always understood. If you look at a map of nations that are less economically free, there is more disease, more poverty, obviously. Uh, That is the problem in a lot of places that we think of the third world or the developing world or underdeveloped world. So I, I love that point. And really the whole point of FeedCon is it took personal stories and people's creative passions instead of it being sort of an economics lecture. There were a few economic lectures. I didn't I didn't join on that track. Um, but it really opened my eyes. I also realized, I just told you this off air, that I love doing this. I had I get to have so much fun talking on air. It's just you and I talking right now. I'm more lecturing, but I did a lot this weekend. And uh there's one guy I was a little envious of, Lou Perez, stand-up comedian. He runs We the Internet. His job sounds like a lot of fun. Because remember you and I doing sketch comedy in high school and yeah. the improv? Yeah. I, we've always loved that stuff. And, like, I I kind of had an itch to do that. I was a little, I was looking at him a little green, a little green with the envy. Oh, but I said that, you know, my cynical self died with the waterworks and this incredible story of being able to help people or just allow them to help themselves. Later that night, you know, there's open bars. They're giving me a per diem to be there. It was a great time. And I met, like, Matt and Mara, who really I I hung out with a lot. Pretty drunk. Not, you know, I didn't lose myself. I remember the whole night. Were there couches? Oh, there were were couches here or there. There were, you know... You you resisted the urge. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll put it this way. It's like 2.30 in the morning. We're sitting out on the balcony adjacent to the hotel bar in the lobby. And Matt and Mar, of course, say, we're going to bed, man. we got a lot to do tomorrow. I understand. I'll probably be right behind you. And I thought I was alone on the balcony. I wasn't. No. There was a woman out there. She said, hi. I said, hello. And I'm like, where are you from? She's like, New Jersey. But I've been here for nine years. Oh, no, this isn't a, like a conference goer. And then she says, you want to have some fun? I said, sure, I'd love, I like fun. And then her next line, I didn't know this was the title now. She goes, you do know I'm a lady of the night. I, I, that's why I wouldn't have said sure. I would have been like, excuse me. And then, well, back to you do know I'm a lady at night. I said, well, I think you should know I'm very, very poor. And actually, I got a dollar figure out. And then 300 And I'm like, oh, no. No. 
No, here's the thing, folks. You think that you're always prim and proper. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. I am this country bumpkin compared to a lot of people out in this world, especially people I've met. When you've never had to make a moral choice, when you're a young single guy, a little bit lonely, a little bit drunk, there is that part of you that goes, well, yeah. But then there's this other side of me that goes, you're an idiot. You are an idiot. Go to bed. Things are going to get weird. There's so much that could go wrong. Go upstairs. So I made the right choice. I went upstairs. I went to sleep. That's. But that was that was uh, my cynical self grew a little bit there. I was like, yeah. Oh God. So that's what happens if you stay out too late in a hotel bar. Well, at least it wasn't. You were so affected by the stories that you heard earlier that when she asks you if you want to have some fun, you just immediately turn to her and go, "There are children without clean water in Africa right now." <laughs> <laughs> that would <one is> just—that <laughs> would just ruin the whole thing. Come on, lady. <laughs> well, coming back, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about some trade issues. But we, you know, you were out last week. I kind of want to also get into Deadpool too. Yeah, loved it, and I want to go see this new Oceans movie. Yeah, I do too. I—I I mean, I'm not excited for it, but I want to give it a chance. Oh, okay. I feel like I owe that to are you the not, series. Are you not excited for it because it's it's women? After seeing Ghostbusters? Mm, I see your point. It better be a damn good movie. I see your point. Did Soderbergh do it? We need to check. Because if he did, it'll probably be good. Yeah, it'd be awesome. <sighs> yeah, it was a weird night. Very moved. Like, there's this world around me, bigger than me, amazing causes to support. And then, you know, sometimes a street-walking cheetah. Yeah, what day was that, Saturday? That was Friday night. Friday night? And Friday during the day at the conference? Yeah. You've covered all the realms of thirst. And on that note, we have to hit a quick break. Thank you for listening. Joey Clark. Welcome back. I listened to Sheik this weekend. Sheik? You listened to Sheik this Live weekend? Live at Bonnaroo. Ooh. Yeah. yeah I did is... not go to Bonnaroo. It was on Sirius. Okay. But it was Sheik. It was like happening? Yeah. Oh, wow. It was great. Well, this is a Kiss. Song is Sure Know Something of 1979's Dynasty. It's all very formulaic now, but it's so it's still good. I know. I, I enjoy it. Because I don't listen to Kiss a lot, so to put this on this morning, I was like, okay, yeah. Did Kiss I ever tell great. you about a trip I had when I was younger to Colorado regarding Kiss? Mm-mm. Uh, my, my family flew out to Colorado. We, we went to 
Denver by way of Colorado Springs. And in Denver, there was this like sort of play park area. It was, in, it was indoors, similar to Fun Zone, except it had 24-7 laser tag. And all they played was Kiss. Oh, that sounds amazing. But it was Stargate-themed. It was <laughs> it was incredible. I must have been there for like two hours. Just oh. all you could play. You, you want to start that business up? Well, I'm sure we can find the seed funding. Let's just start that here in Montgomery again. It's like, wait, Kiss was a thing in the 70s and the 80s. Who's going to want to do Kiss? Everybody. Yeah. I would love to paint my face with Stargate guns and just take out people. Mm-hmm. We need some laser tag here in the gump. Do we have a laser tag? I don't know. If you do, well, you need to hit me up and be an advertiser here on the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Because I, I, I would crush some. Well, no. Yeah. If you'd asked me before <laughs> the first of the year, I would have crushed some laser tag. Yeah, you're on the injured reserve for the time being when it comes to laser tag. I'll be the guy that sits on his vest in a chair so you can't hit it. <laughs> And I'm just, I just pick off kids. And you're being way too intense. It's like <laughs> small children. It's like, I'm going to win. <laughs> I need Overwatch. <laughs> now, uh, off air, we got into the G7. And there's some news. Uh, there's one line out of the G7 meeting uh, when I was at FECON. Now, of course, we're talking about free trade, economic freedom the whole time uh, at FECON. And Trump apparently told the leaders in some working session... We should at least consider 0% tariffs on everybody. I was like, what? Because that everybody at FECON, that's our position. Like, no tariffs, actual free trade. And apparently Trudeau said back to that, but what about the subsidies? And I, what I like about this is because if Donald Trump really thinks raising tariffs is gonna, are going to protect American jobs, I don't think that's true. It protects them for certain sectors at the cost of other sectors, especially when retaliatory tariffs get thrown back at us. But I like him saying that in the meeting because it calls out everybody else on their bluff. Like, they want to get mad at Trump for raising tariffs, but Canada, the European Union... They all are behaving like protectionists themselves. So they want to be mad at Trump for being a protectionist, yet they want to be protectionists for their own countries. And they're trying to say these current trade deals, like the transatlantic partnership that Trump scrapped, that was going to be free trade. The TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was going to be free trade. That NAFTA is free trade. No, it's not. Yeah, You have all sorts of tariffs, all sorts of worker restraints and quotas and subsidies. It is absurd that this is what is passed for free trade because it's a trade agreement between nations. No, we need actual free trade. Actual free trade. And so, you know, I don't want there to be tariffs raised on Americans buying things from abroad. I am a unilateral free trader. Milton Friedman made a genius argument, especially in relation to Hong Kong, other island nations, that even if a place has no resources, you get rid of barriers. It's what would help Africa. It's what would help a lot of places. If you allow people just to be ingenious in their own lives to figure out how to improve their lives without the government stepping in and taking a huge cut. It's not that we should be mad at just Donald Trump or any other U.S. president or anybody else in the U.S. government. I'm pissed off on this issue at every damn government in the world. 
because they're not protecting anybody but themselves and their control of the economic population, the economic slice of the pie. Well, I, I suppose in that case, God, I'm going to sound like Rudy Giuliani. It's really a matter of perspective. Yeah. You know, if if you're one of those people that really cares about the environment, it would stand to reason that free trade with regards to resource management is not a good idea. If you're President Donald Trump and you're trying to revive the manufacturing sector of the United States after we've already transitioned to a service-based economy, right. how does free trade actually help you do that when you're really going to need subsidies? Well, I think it could lower the cost of a lot of inputs for U.S. manufacturing. For instance, like... Is uh, there enough li- liquidity to go around with regard... I mean, you have entire towns built on manufacturing. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Birmingham was one of those with the steel industry. It was with steel and you coal. Have, you have places off the Great Lakes that were massive car manufacturers, and now those are ghost towns. Those are ghost towns, but what's happened? But I think a lot of that is self-inflicted based on those own towns and own states' regulatory policies and some of the business models with some of the retirement packages that the unions had worked out just wasn't going to work financially, and it didn't. It really decimated places like Detroit. But car manufacturing is booming in the South, in the United States of America. So, for instance... If you look at Alabama, and these are fairly a few-year-old numbers, but Alabama imports. What does Alabama import for other countries that Trump gets so mad about? They import, well, medical devices. Birmingham has become this medical hub of the world and the country. And also, we import a lot of car parts from Germany and Korea because we have a Hyundai plant here in Montgomery. And a Mercedes-Benz plant and, mm-hmm. uh, in between Tuscaloosa and Birmingham. And so because it's they want a high-skilled laborer that they're willing to pay a great wage, but they like the regulatory environment, especially in places like Alabama, we get to import all these, like say, devices like car seats was one of them, ignition starters, these sort of things. And the assembly is done in a high-tech way here in the state of Alabama. So I think you could bring back all sorts of manufacturing if you lower the cost of doing business in terms of regulatory burdens, but also just it doesn't cost as much to bring in your part. Somebody, say, in Germany might be holding back if it does cost 20% to bring in a certain good to assemble in the U.S. But if you're selling to Americans certain cars, like my car, it's a 96 BMW. It was the first BMW, or one of the first, built in the United States in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Because they want to sell to Americans who want BMWs, makes sense to make it here. I just, I find that free trade, we have it between all the states in the United States. And there's a reason we have it, because it's just best, it's the cheapest way. It allows for more creativity and ingenuity. There might be so-called trade imbalances in certain goods, but that's because certain places are better at making certain things. And I'm all for competition when it is in a realm of freedom. Not this competition of, I want you to raise taxes on certain businesses in order to make things fair so I don't have to compete as well. I think that is the wrong way to produce jobs and to produce wealth. Hmm. So that's where I would love to see things go, but coming out of the G7 summit, apparently here's what it was. The joint communique was going to say all countries involved in the G7 will promise at some point to lower tariff barriers across the board between our nations. 
I'm like, that's a great communique from my perspective. I would like zero, but you know, I don't have to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If, if we're all going to lower it, great. The Trump perspective of the story goes like this. That was going to be the joint communique. Then Justin Trudeau came out and said, well, actually, we're also in the short term going to put retaliatory tariffs on U.S. agriculture and other sectors. And so Trump came out and said, Trudeau, like, stabbed me in the back. He's a liar. And it was a talking point. Pete Navarro, the trade representative for this administration, Rudy Giuliani, they all came out and said, you stabbed us in the back. How dare you? And we're not going to support the communique anymore. So I think it was Trudeau trying to be, like, strong. He, I, I think he literally said Canadians aren't going to be pushed around. Yeah. But you are already putting – you're doing what – you're. This is what's wrong with protectionism, and it's wrong with a lot of what the parties do. You get upset at the other guy for doing the same thing you're doing, and it's a race to more taxes, more government control. I would love to see a race to who can slash the most, who can create the greatest environment of freedom and prosperity. I'm not saying go full anarchist and get rid of everything. I'm saying that if you want wealth and you want jobs and prosperity, sustainable jobs and prosperity in the long term, get rid of all these barriers. And let's stop thinking of the economy as, oh, the economy is cut up by all these borders, these national borders. It's not. It really is a true global economy. And it's how are we going to run it? Are we going to run it with centralized trade blocks with the European Union and a Eurasian Union between Russia and China and then the United States and you know, all of North America having their own trade block and these trade blocks kind of compete and control. This is why, a big reason why, along with immigration, Great Britain pulled out of the EU, or they're trying to, because they can't quickly and nimbly, say, create a free trade agreement with Australia or with the U.S. They have to go through Brussels and the uh, controlling bureaucracy of the EU. And I like the idea of more decentralization if it means more freedom. Now, you do have to worry in other respects. Part of me thinks that regardless of what were said about the tariffs that Trump initially put in place from his party, yeah. part of me thinks that they, they raised the tariffs strictly so that they could bring up the zero tariff point at the G7. Mm-hmm, too. That's and, my then, hope. and then when they got everybody to say we should lower tariffs, all Trump would have to do is lower it back to what it was before he put them up. Right. Yes. It so it would, it would be a zero movement from the United States part. Well, and if you want me to lower more, you lower more. I think it was a... It was, it is, that's, oh, a it's, that's a little bad faith. But it's all leverage. Yeah. I mean, that is that is how Trump's behaving. I mean, look at this. In less than an, almost an hour or so, Trump will be sitting down with Kim Jong-un, who we thought were nuclear saber-rattling, a little rocket man, and my button's bigger than yours and actually works. And it's like, what's this guy doing? They're now sitting down for what could be a historic peace summit. This is how the guy operates. There are a lot of libertarians who do this thing now where I agree with. Trump does something like cut taxes, like the tax reform plan. Not my ideal tax reform plan, but I'll have to spend less, give less to the government next year. Good Trump. Trump raises tariffs on steel and aluminum. Bad Trump. So, yeah. you know, sometimes it's good Trump, sometimes it's bad Trump. <laughs> it's, <laughs> sorry. It's like that video I showed you of Gennaro Gattuso, the manager of AC Milan, saying sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe, maybe, maybe none. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I want to circle back to FECON because at the end of the day, what I took away from FECON is it's sort of, it's what I've been trying to do with the show, maybe imperfectly, is essentially telling, instead of ranting, like I've done a little bit tonight, but instead of ranting about political policies and economic policies or beating over the head with the philosophy of liberty, uh, Larry Reed, who has blessed me by being on this show, and by the way, I was watching him at the conference. First off, he came up, he remembered me, didn't just say hi. He actually sat down with me. Can I sit next to you at lunch, Joey? And though he's this prim and proper guy in many ways, we sat there and made, like, jokes. We're swapping jokes for 20 minutes. But I watched him after that, how he dealt with everybody. That is an admirable human being. You sometimes wonder, where are the adults in the room? That's the adult in the room. Remarkable man. And he was up on stage talking about the freedom philosophy is a life philosophy. It's not that you're part of this political party. You rant about this political position or you want to be a free market economist. He said, you need to really take it to heart that it's about how do we help human beings at the end of the day flourish and become full, well-rounded people. And that's why I think they had the guy who went through um, you know, being this debauched club promoter is now trying to bring water to the world. That's why they had all sorts of creative professionals who were saying, hey, you can follow your passion but also make a living and start a family doing these things. And the further I go with this show, I want to make it more about, not just opportunity for myself because it is opportunity for myself, but bringing people on and figuring out, okay, how are you making your life better? What lesson did you learn? Maybe it is that night where a you know, a street walk or a lady of the night, as she called herself, approached and you said no. Maybe you said yes, and what all went wrong? I want to know all these stories from the good and the bad, so we can learn together. That's the goal. Hmm. That's the goal. I like that. I also think if you're going to do that thing with Saint Elmo's Fire again, yeah. you should replace it with Love Actually. Love Actually? Yeah. View it through the lens of all those characters. Okay. Who am I in Love Actually? I don't know. Well, if if it's the same character that's in St. Elmo's Fire, then you are the guy that is in love with Kira Knightley, even though oh. she's married to... Ryan, and everybody thinks he's gay. Chiwetel Chiwetel Ejiofor? Yeah. Yeah. Nicely. I can't say his name. That's nicely done. I kind of want to be. I'm not them. I'm not this guy, but I want to be Colin Firth in love, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like, the love of my life cheats on with him with my brother. Miserable part of the of the story. But then you fall in love with somebody that you don't even speak the same language with. And then you learn the language, and she's also learned the language, and there's this whole town cheering you on to kiss each other at the end. Ah, oh, that would be glorious. In this moment, since I'm more inclined to reduce things to the absurd, I would like to be First Lobster. First lobster. <laughs> yes, it was more than one lobster oh. present at the birth of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to be Prime Minister of Great Britain, but I don't think that's in the cards. <laughs> oh, we call him a chubby. chubby. Oh, we love that movie way too much. Yeah. Yeah. For two cisgendered hetero men, we love that movie way too much. Same with Oceans. Yeah, and we need to go see the new Oceans 8. Do we have enough people? <laughs> no, not enough people. Can't train a cat that fast. <laughs> train a cat that fast. Yeah, I, those, by the way, folks, those are the type of movies, and we'll do a whole show on this, the type of movie, whenever it comes on, whether it's on the TV, like some cable network or whatever, 
I'll sit and watch it. Like I never get tired of the Oceans movies. <laughs> we how, we've had to have watched it over a hundred times through college, through yeah. all the things we've been through. Yeah, that's one of those where it just never gets old. I love the scheming, and even though it's like okay, these are thieves, and I believe in property rights and don't steal. <laughs> it's like when you're that good, some respect. Gotta have some respect for how classy, how ingenious you are. If you ask me that question again, Daniel, <laughs> you will not wake up the following morning. <laughs> when Brad Pitt goes to recruit Saul, <laughs> it's like I saw you <laughs> in <laughs> I saw the promenade. <laughs> I saw you after the third race. I saw you before you woke up this morning. <laughs> oh, I'm trying. Is that Carl Ryder? That actor's name? That guy. I think is, so. Yeah. Guy is genius. He really is genius. So it's a growing process, man. I don't know. I, By the way, me saying I'm a hermit, it's not a joke. I had crippling social anxiety the first day. Not quite a panic attack, but like on the verge of one. Like I was physically affected. Sweating. Like sweating, how my voice would come out. Oh, wow. Like I'm used to sitting here, this is my home, away from home, and having a conversation. But there was something, it made me realize I need to get out more, number one. Because I opened up after a day and a half, two days. I was like, okay, I'm fine. I got to know people. But it's something that I, I need to work on. I almost feel like after mom died, I got a, I became a bit agoraphobic. Like I'd stay in my lane, home or work. And that's got to change. Got to get out there. And I was asking people about what I should add to my bucket list, but not. I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. Something that rhymes with bucket list. And maybe a tattoo. Some people suggested skydiving. I don't want to jump. Why would you jump out of a perfectly... I was going to suggest that to you. I was thinking about this last week. I was like, dude, I should get Joey to go. We should go skydiving. Yeah, but that scene in Deadpool 2? That ruined it for you? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the, we got we to face our fears. I'm not going to ruin it for people who haven't seen it, but the invisible guy... Mm. It gets, you know, you don't see who it is, but then when he's skydiving and parachuting down, he gets caught on a power cable. And then, then it's it's almost like in <laughs> Thor Ragnarok when you see Matt Damon. And you go, is that Matt Damon? <laughs> yeah, it's a, one of the greatest cameos of all time. And Deadpool 2. Deadpool 2 is where it's at. It's, it's good to be back in the saddle. I almost don't know what to do with myself right now. I really don't. Like, I got used to the three-day debauchery and learning things and being inspired. And it's, uh, well, maybe I'll work it out. Take this show on the road. Like, see the world, travel the country. You and I, like, just chatting. Get a van. Get a van, yeah. You'd be, you'd be van dwellers. I mean, they can't be all white. What was that? That was my stomach. Oh, man, have you eaten? Yeah, I had a pork chop. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. What was that sound? Don't worry about it. Oh, and I almost forgot my favorite thing I did this weekend. I was wearing my Ric Flair shirt. Mm -hmm. There were people who didn't know who Ric Flair was. Oh, my God. I'm like, you don't know who Ric Flair is? So I pulled up YouTube. I showed them this famous promo. And without fail, everybody walked away laughing their ass off and in love with Ric Flair. Because the man is an icon. They did not know who Ric Flair was. So I said... Here's who Ric Flair is. You're talking to the Rolex wearing diamond ring wearing kiss stealing, woo, wheeling dealing, limousine riding, jet flying. 
son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. <laughs> Every time it makes me laugh. Every time. Well, Troy, it's good to see you again. I'm glad that you're you're playing hurt, though. Be all right. Let's go see Ocean's Eight this weekend. Okay. We'll report back to you, audience. And thank you to everybody. Thank you to Sean Malone for inviting me to FECON. That was great meeting Matt, Mara. Are they aware that the name of that con sounds like uh, a smell eliminator? Hmm. Well, the name of the organization is Fee. Right, right. But FeeCon. It's like Be Gone. But for fecal things. Yeah, we're getting rid of the stench of statism. Oh, oh that okay. my libertarian brutalist I came out there. Oh, boy. Yeah. How Exterminate rude. the state. No, how rude of me. How rude. Well, I'll be back tomorrow night, folks. Got uh, Renzo Martinez. He's out with a new book. I go back a little ways as Renzo. He first heard me here in Montgomery. He's done big things with his life. So uh, tune in tomorrow night, folks. Be chatting some more. Till then, ta ta. I was mesmerized. I felt scared inside.